familiar with the term, which is the title for this morning's message, Catch and Release. Catch and Release is the practice of successful fishermen who, after they have tricked a fish, I'm not sure what's so exciting about tricking a fish that has a brain the size of a marble, but it is, after they have tricked a fish into biting and wrangled it into a boat or to the dock or the shore, they then let it go back into the water that it might live to fight another day. This morning in our text from Acts chapter 5, we come across a version of catch and release. The difference this time, though, from the last time, Peter and John were dragged into court only to be let go. The release here, this time, is not by the will or at the hands of the captors. This time, God intervened and sent an angel who opened the prison doors. He let the witnesses out, apparently shut and locked the doors behind them, very polite angel, and he put them back into the public square to keep teaching and preaching. One gets the sense, as we have all along in the book of Acts, that God is very serious about the promulgation of his church through the proclamation of his gospel. Let's pray. Our Father God, we love your word. It is truth. It leads us into all truth. It tells us things about you we could never know and would never find on our own. So we praise you and thank you for it. Help us as we study together to divide it rightly and receive it as you intend it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as we come to our text this morning in Acts chapter 5, uh, things are heating up in Jerusalem. Tensions are on the rise. Before Peter and John had been imprisoned, um, in this passage, all the apostles are taken into custody. Previously, Peter and John had just been warned and let go, but here all the apostles are beaten before they are dismissed. You see, so hostility toward the church is increasing. Jesus said that it would. Whenever the gospel advances, resistance intensifies. And the gospel is advancing. We're reading about that. We have seen that great grace was upon the whole church. And with great power, the apostles are performing miracles and signs and wonders. They're testifying to the resurrection of Jesus so successfully that more than ever, believers are being added to the Lord. Christianity is spreading. The church is multiplying. And while that is good news for many and a cause for rejoicing, it has the opposite effect on some. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, they hated Jesus. Now they hate the teaching that's going on in Jesus' name, and they are determined to do something about it. Whenever the gospel advances, resistance intensifies. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. So the religious leaders of Israel rise up. They are not going to take this threat to the status quo sitting down. And Luke tells us what their real problem was. And filled with jealousy. Why did they rise up? Because they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy is a hateful emotion. English poet John Dryden declared it the jaundice of the soul. Jealousy is more than just wanting what 
someone else has, it's being angry that they have it and you don't. And in this instance, the apostles have the favor of the people. And demonstrable power, while the religious leaders of the day are not particularly popular, they, they are feared more than respected. And what power they wield is carnal power. It's earthly, um, forceful power. It's not influence born out of admiration, which is what any leader would really want. But they didn't care. They are now jealous because that's what the apostles are getting. And they're not just a little bit jealous. Luke tells us they are filled with jealousy. Now, we have seen Luke use this phrase before, and we will see it again as we make our way through the book of Acts. At Pentecost, the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. Observers of that early church in those first moments were filled with wonder and amazement. They didn't know how to understand it. Peter, in his preaching at Pentecost, was filled with the Holy Ghost. Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie. And here the council members who represent the religious life and direction of Israel are filled with jealousy. And what they are filled with determines how they thought and what they would do. And you know what? That is true for everyone. Here, hearts full of envy lead to an abuse of power. In other cases, it might be bitterness or sadness or anxiety, sorrow, inadequacy, fear, pride. All these emotions and all these attitudes that have the capacity to fill our hearts, if they're not checked, they become the driving forces in our lives, driving in destructive forces. They lead to unbecoming and unproductive words and deeds. You know, what we are filled with determines how we think and what we do. And so the scripture directs us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. The present tense of the verb there could be translated, keep on being filled with the Spirit. The apostles are filled with the Spirit, and the Sanhedrin is filled with jealousy. Consequently, the apostles are spending their days going about doing good to all, and the Sanhedrin is spending its time figuring out how it can have its own way. The council orders the twelve to be taken into custody and detained. Their detention, however, is short-lived. As during the night, verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out. Now, there is no suspense at all surrounding the imprisonment of the apostles. And there is no end zone celebration either at their release. Okay? At least not according to Luke's writing. As phenomenal as that was, the details of the angel-led escape elude us. We don't have them. They are not recorded which means and tells us that what is recorded is what we're intended to have because it's perfect writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. As much as we may want more of those details, we don't get them because we don't need them. But what we have is what's most important. And what's most important is not so much the rescue of these apostles from a night in the clink, which was gracious, right? And the type of incident that I refer to often as God showing off. God can do that anytime he wants, and I love it when he does. He just makes it happen. That is what God does. 
But, the, but what is most important here is not their escape, but the purpose of their liberation. That's what I think, anyway, as I read it. Because the angel commanded them, Acts 5.20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. In his commentary on Acts, Frank Stagg states that a major purpose of Luke's is to show a victory in Christianity, to show the expansion of a concept, the liberation of the gospel as it breaks through barriers that are religious, racial, and national. And here we see it happening literally. The gospel will not be bound. The gospel cannot be bound. God, who is not passive, but active in spreading the message of salvation, will see that his gospel is not bound. Go do what landed you here in the first place, is what the angel told the apostles. Go do what, they, what put you here in the first place. Keep at it. Keep at it. That's the order. The preaching and the teaching of Jesus must go on. In fact, as we make our way through this passage, we find this word teaching six times. And we might expect an emphasis on teaching, don't you think? You recall Jesus' commission to the disciples from Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay, by the way, that's why this, this is a question I do get. Probably you get it too. How come you Christians just don't leave people alone? How come, how come you all can't just let, let people be the way that they are? Nobody's bothering you. Why do you bother them? So let me refer you to why we do what we do. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Why do we insert ourselves into people's lives? Why do we share what we truly believe is salvation, the message of salvation and truth? Because Jesus told us to. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples. Teach them. Teach them. And the apostles are obedient both to, to the command that, that uh, the angel had given to them and the commission that they had received from Jesus. They, they show up, Luke tells us, the next morning at daybreak, they get right after it to continue bearing witness to Jesus. They show up and they stand in the temple. And I think there's something powerful there too, right? I, I, won't, I won't say it equates, equates to standing on the, the you know, midfield emblem of a, of a team, but there's something about going and standing in the temple, okay? Because they're not giving up on the temple. And they're not giving up on the people who worship there. Even though they have rejected Jesus, even though they have rejected the apostles, they continue to go to this very place. They are not abandoning their Jewish brothers and sisters. They continue to, to preach the truth. In a moment, we're going to see that they're not even giving up on the men who imprisoned them. But they're going to have to be kicked out if they're going to go. You see, the gospel comes first to the lost house of Israel. And then when Israel rejects it, then... It is taken to all the world. So the apostles stand. They take their stand in the temple. And they speak to the people the words of life. 
Later in the morning, the high priest and the council convene, and, and they send for the apostles. And this is a beautifully ironic scene, okay? Figure out what's going on here. In come the top dogs. In come the big wigs. In come the people who think they control everything and call all the shots. You see them showing up to their office suites, and they get together, and then they say, just bring the riffraff to us. Just bring them to us. This is an ironic scene because these men are carrying on as if they're in control of something. Okay? They're carrying on as if they really do have power, as if they really do have influence, as if they control the agenda, but God has his own agenda. They think they are powerful, but God is in complete control. And God has already bested them. They just don't know it. They're summoning people to go to an empty jail cell. But soon they figure it out, right? When the officers came, verses 22 and 23, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. No one inside. Does that phrase mean anything to you? Does that remind you of anything, Christian? Because it wasn't too long prior to this incident that the Jewish authorities thought they had sent Jesus to a permanent captivity called death. No one escaped from the grave. But just to be sure, because he had made claims to this effect, the tomb that held the body of Jesus was sealed and guards were positioned outside that place where he was laid to rest. And then Matthew's gospel has this to say. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. He had risen. He had conquered death. And so he holds out the promise of eternal life to all who will receive him by faith, who will receive the gift of salvation purchased by his blood on the cross. No one inside. Not in that tomb. Not in that jail. Is it coincidence that the Sadducees, who are part of this conspiracy to silence the apostles, are also the party most vehemently opposed to the doctrine of the resurrection. If nothing else, God is forcing these men to deal with the realities of his power that transcend their ideas of how things ought to be and how things are, without a doubt, a God whose resurrection power leaves an empty tomb has no trouble rescuing his witnesses and leaving an empty jail cell. And while they're wondering about all this, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. 
That must have been infuriating. Can you imagine that? Where are they? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? No, we do know. Where are they? Right where you told them not to be. Oh, okay. That's how you want to play. Go get them. Go get them. But they're perplexed too, right? And they're wondering, what is this going to come to? And, by the way, the captain of the guard, the people go, see, we're going to go get them. But we're not going to drag them in here violently. Because the people love these guys. And they haven't done anything wrong. And there's no reason to mistreat them. You know all that is going on. We'll bring them gently. And they did. And the apostles showed up before the council, and the high priest questioned them. He said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so Peter, we're seeing Peter is emerging as a very significant person in the early church, a powerful, Holy Spirit-filled preacher. He's showing up as the spokesperson for the apostles frequently, and so he replies to the two charges. As to the first, that the apostles are defying an order of the high priest in Sanhedrin, he says simply, we must obey God rather than men. We have covered this already in our study, but to reiterate so you know, or if you're new, what, what, what is a Christian perspective on this sort of disobedience to civil authority? Christians are called, no doubt about it, to submit to the authorities that are put over us. But we are not obligated to follow men's commands that contradict or prohibit us from following God's. We must obey God rather than men. Even if it costs us dearly, we must be willing to obey God because it is the right thing to do. So Peter is not rude here. He's never been rude, but he also is not apologetic. To the second accusation that the apostles hold the religious leaders to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus, well, there is no back down here either. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses in these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if, if the apostles were faint-hearted at all, okay, if they were faint-hearted at all, you can imagine that they wouldn't really be happy about what Peter is saying. But if they were worried, they would be looking at each other and they would say something like, oh, not this again. He's going to tell them they killed Jesus. Like he's done it three times already and he's just going to get us into more trouble. And they would be right because that's exactly what he did, right? But listen, maybe we don't want to be offensive with this message that you killed Jesus. You had something to do with the death of Christ. Your sin sent him to that cross. Oh, we don't want to offend anybody with anything like that, but I'm telling you this. Nobody gets saved who is not prepared to understand this truth, that it was their sin for whom Jesus died. Nobody gets saved unless they understand that Jesus went to that cross for them and for their sin. The sin from which they must repent if they want to receive forgiveness. So Peter is really only doing a favor here, even though I guarantee you some in the crowd be like, no, I don't think that's how you win friends and influence enemies. I don't think that's the best way to do it. But Peter decides they need to hear the truth. Jesus died in our place who were his enemies in order to call every one of us who receives him friend. The apostles are Christ's friends and they have betrayed him once. All of them. And they will not betray him again. 
And they know, they know because of Ananias and Sapphira, they know that it is way more important to be friends with Jesus than friends with the world. And they are not faint-hearted. They must bear witness. So Peter preaches forcefully, but he doesn't preach obnoxiously. He doesn't preach with an intent to alienate. He doesn't want to set himself apart as superior or better in any way. He's careful. He uses inclusive language, the God of our fathers. See, they're still appealing to that Jewish heritage. This is the God of our fathers. He focuses on the prospect of salvation for Israel. He lays out the opportunities in Jesus for repentance and forgiveness. You don't have to live without him. You don't have to die and go to hell. You don't have to do that. You can repent. You can be forgiven. He paid for your sin. If you will just receive that, you will be clean. You will be sanctified. Peter is begging them. He's imploring them. And he keeps after them. And one commentator put it this way. The sermons with their persistent themes demonstrate the persistence of the apostles who neither crumbled before powerful opponents nor despair of the possibility of repentance. Friends, if the apostles don't despair of the possibility of repentance, neither should we. If they're not willing to give up, on the people who are treating them the worst, we shouldn't be given up on anybody either. And so I tell you today, pray for your prodigals. Pray for those who are hostile to the faith. Pray for your family members who are ambivalent. Pray and share the gospel, hoping and believing always the possibility of turning, the possibility of repentance. That's what Peter is doing. That's what Peter is doing. There's a possibility here. Now listen, his sermonette crashes and burns. Okay, to be truthful, it kind of had the opposite effect. Truth does that sometimes, doesn't it? It was a good try. And he was honest to what he knew. But he just ended up making people mad. An old supervisor friend of mine wisely said, sometimes the operation is a success and the patient dies. Sometimes you can do it right. You can do everything right technically, but the outcome is not the one that you wanted. And here I'm quite sure that Peter has done everything right, but those people wouldn't hear it. No one would receive it. And what the truth managed to do was infuriate the council members who are ready now to have the apostles killed. And they would have done that if it weren't for a voice of wisdom coming from a respected rabbi whose later claim to fame was not this intervention, but that he was a teacher to someone who would become very prominent in Christian history. Someone, by the way, who did not share his restraint when it came to the Christians. Instead, someone who would ravage the church. And we're going to see him just a couple of chapters from now. His name is Saul. You know him better as Paul, but that's getting ahead. This rabbi stands to make the case that the religious leaders ought to take it easy on the disciples just in case that they were really from God, what they were doing was really from on high, and the council relents and opts instead not to kill them, just to beat them and tell them again, Stop talking about 
Jesus. So if they think that that is going to stop them, they, as has been said to me more than once or twice, have another think coming. Verse 41, when they left the presence of the council rejoicing, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, to be flogged, to be beaten, to be censured was publicly dishonoring about which the disciples lodged no complaint. No screaming about rights, no pointing any fingers, no name-calling, no squawking about injustice, nothing like that. These men are so aligned with the mission and the life of Jesus that they are absolutely ecstatic to suffer for the sake of his name. They are so filled with the Spirit, which is to be filled with joy unspeakable that they rejoice over their persecution. This is just what Jesus told them to do. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Many years later, the Apostle Peter would give this same advice, this time from his own personal experience, right? 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a way to think about trials. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And we know from Acts, the spirit of glory and of God is resting on the apostles. Friend, if the walls really are closing in on our faith these days, if hostility toward Christianity is um, heating up, like, just like it was in these early days of this first church, are you ready to respond with rejoicing? Am I ready to respond with rejoicing? Can we be thankful? Can United Baptist Church folk be thankful to endure hardship and mistreatment for the, just the opportunity to witness about the Lord? The apostles are. They are undeterred. They are joyful. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Every day in that temple, going house to house. Now, how important is this idea, this theme? We've seen it, talked about it a little bit today, of teaching and preaching that Jesus is Lord. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the very end of the book of Acts to the 28th chapter, Acts chapter 28. I want you to see a little bit of a theme traced. I'm not going to the middle. I'm just going here and to the end, but you'll get the gist. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. The Apostle Paul is in Rome. He's a prisoner of the gospel in what looks like some form of house arrest, okay? 
And we read here, verse 30, I think, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and what? Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching. Even with its chosen messengers in chains, the gospel will not be bound. God intends for his people to preach and teach. The church marches onward. The word of God goes forth in the power and in the presence of God. And remarkably here, with all boldness and without hindrance. Is God at work? God is at work. Emboldening the hearts of his servants and clearing the way for them. Even in prison to preach about the gospel. So let's wrap this thing up. I want to offer four thoughts from our passage for today. First, I want you to take note, if you haven't already, that we just read and poured over a story whose main actor never sets a foot on the stage. Okay? The main player here never makes the page. That one, of course, is God. Because God is in all, and God is over all, and God is through all. But he's not always seen, is he? You can't always see him when he's at work. And that may be the case for you today in your life. That you're not aware of God being at work with you on your behalf, on behalf of his church. You can't really perceive him acting out his sovereign will. But beloved, I want you to know the God of Israel never slumbers, never sleeps. Always at work on behalf of his loved ones. Always. And he is with you. Whether it feels like it or not today for whatever you're going through, he is with you. He is with you always. He promises never leave you or forsake you. Remember the end of that great commission. Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. So, secondly, I want you to leave today recognizing that the power of humanity is limited. Because as we peruse this story, it looks like the Sanhedrin is in charge and yet they absolutely are not in charge. And God proves that they're not in charge with this miraculous deliverance of the apostles from prison. And he frees them so that they can go and preach. Some people in this world suffer with an illusion of power. We might call it the delusion of power. Every one of us is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for any use we ever made with any power or authority that was granted to us. We are not hardly ever as large and in charge as we want to believe we are. Humanity is simply limited. All glory, all honor, all power belongs to God. And the enemies of the Lord may arise and seem fierce, but they can only do so much. And I want you to know that. If someone's coming against you today because of your faith, if you're experiencing the kind of evil that we're studying in our Sunday school class, evil that is personal and directed at you simply because you are Christian, I want you to understand that even if these enemies arise against you and they seem strong and fierce, they can only do so much. You must understand that their reach is limited. It is governed by God Almighty. And so the psalmist says, Psalm 56, In God I trust, 
I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I don't want you to be intimidated, Christian, by those who oppose and threaten your faith. Their power is limited, and God is able to deliver you just the way he delivered those apostles out of that jail cell. Thirdly, if you have joined yourself to this thing called church, and I really hope you have, I want you to know that you are joined to something enduring and eternal. Right? This is the church. Whatever anybody else wants to say about it, however anybody wants to write about it, characterize it or anything, and we've been far from perfect since our inception, but I will tell you this. If you have joined yourself to this thing known as the church, capital C, you are joined to something enduring and eternal. Again and again, we're going to read in this book of Acts how the devil attempts to derail, how the devil tries to stomp out the church. It didn't happen, and it never will happen, okay? Christ is building his church. Jesus is always building his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He says that, so take heart today to know that no matter which way the winds of the culture are blowing, or what is said about Christianity, or even about you, we're part of something enduring and eternal. And Job reminds us, our Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. He and all who are his with him will stand on the earth. God prevails. God wins. If you are joined to God, you prevail too. If you are not joined to God, let me respectfully ask you, what are you joined to? And do you have any reasonable hope that whatever you have given yourself to is enduring and eternal. Because those are the promises of God about his church. And this is part of that teaching right there. So brothers, sisters, would-be brothers and sisters, I invite you, if you are not part of the church, if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, give that some thought, would you please? Because this thing isn't going away. It prevails, it wins, and it is eternal. And lastly, you may not understand what's happening in your life in any given moment or season. We've all been there. Some of you are there right now. I know it. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, even though you don't know what's going on, you can be rest so assured he does. Okay? He does. We do not read of the apostles complaining about their mistreatment. We don't read about the intrusion into their day. We don't don't see anything in here about them talking about their unlawful detainment. And we could imagine, right, there must have been a little bit of confusion going on, a little bit of concern about what happens when they're standing in the temple and they're preaching and they're teaching and all of a sudden these, these people come and want to whisk them away. A little bit of consternation at least, right? What is going to come of them? What is happening? But while they may have that, and while you may have, there's also an abiding faith that the God who'd gotten them that far wasn't about to leave them. And I'll say that, the God who's gotten you this far isn't going to leave you now. He won't. And you can count on that. He promises that. As Alistair Begg put it, God will accomplish his purposes even when we have no idea where we're headed (laughs) Or what he's doing. Right? God will accomplish his purposes. Even if we have no idea where we're headed or what he's doing. This, he says, is our hope in every circumstance. 
So whatever life throws at you, this is your hope in every circumstance, and I do pray that you have that hope today. And if you don't have that hope today, that you might be willing now to pray and to ask God for it. If you need it, why not ask God for it? Or perhaps this hope has been fleeting with you or inconsistent with you through some challenges that you are facing. I hope that you might be willing to come and pray after the service or pray with a friend, maybe a friend who came with you or somebody here as you look around that you recognize. Just reach out and say, hey, I'm not really that hopeful these days. I, I need you to pray with me. I need you to pray for me. That is what we're here for. In a little bit, we're going we're gonna to invite the elders to the front after we sing. And if you would like to pray or talk or anything like that, we just do invite you to come. Our Father, we thank you again for your word and for its promises, for its truth that holds us fast. We thank you, Lord, that even though we recognize as we sit here uh, today, we may be in some odd circumstances for which we feel we have no strength or not the possibility of deliverance or rescue. All things are possible with you. We turn to you now, Lord, as we continue our worship and ask for your Holy Spirit to impress upon us the truths that you intend for us to learn and receive this day. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. <laughs>